How did a frontline Disney employee expose an international counterfeiting ring? And how does it relate to a transformative cycle in healthcare? Welcome to the Transformative Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Chobatar. I serve as publisher and editor-in-chief of Advent Health Press. We're trying something new with this series. Usually we create a podcast after a book is released, but this time we're going to share the book's concepts as a work in progress before they're published. Our authors are Dr. Jeffrey Kuhlman, Senior Vice President and Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Advent Health Orlando, and Daniel Peach, Director of Clinical Transformation at Advent Health Orlando. Today's episode is entitled, Doing is Believing. Now, let's join Jeffrey Kuhlman and Daniel Peach as they discuss an international counterfeiting ring, creating sustainable change, and frontline empowerment. We all have a life before medicine in some way, form, and I have one of those. As part of it, was involved in law enforcement. And I worked for a private organization, which was quite large, based around theme parks. And there were many, many interesting stories that came out of it. But there was one that really started to resonate when we were looking at what we were doing with um, building the this approach to, to, to assisting clinical staff. And it started when, a long time ago, when a frontline staff, member of staff, was actually working in one of the stores. And a guest approached and paid for some goods. And they used a traveler's check, which at that time used to happen a lot. It was in the olden days when there was only cash and traveler's checks and people didn't really use credit cards a lot because it cost you a fortune. And they gave over this traveler's check and the staff in this particular place had had all been trained to identify bad currency, bad traveler's checks, um, shifty looking individuals where there may be maybe a problem. And they've been through training and um, had given input into the process that were involved. And this particular staff member felt something wasn't right. They took the traveler's check as they were trained to do and did their normal, thank you very much, sir, and have a nice day. And then what they did is they flipped straight over into the training process that was there. They made the call through to us. And as investigators, they spoke to us and said, look, I've got this traveler's check. It's really good, but it just, it's not right. There's something not quite right about it. So we jumped on it and we spoke to the particular company that was involved in producing these traveler's checks, which was a huge organization. And that's one of the big things they did at that time. And spoke to their lead investigator and said, look, we've got this particular traveler's check. Our staff member says it doesn't quite look good. It's, It's not quite right. And they used to validate those. They could go back and check the numbers and they could tell whether it was a good bill or a bad bill. They said, no, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about it. And we went down and collected it and had a look and said, you know what? You're probably right. There's something not quite right about this. And so we said, look, we'll take it. We'll see what happens. We then got a call from another staff member. I've got this traveler's check. It's not quite right. I can't put my finger on it. So we rushed over, we pulled out the traveler's check, and it was a different number. We called up the investigators at at the company that produced these, and they said, no, 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 it's a good bill. You can use it, you can spend it, it's fine. Now we're we're not sure. 
So we used to have staff that part of the investigations division that were plain clothed, and we used to use those for various details. And so we assigned those to this guy that had been highlighted, and he was tracked as he moved through the, the park. And every time he laid down one of these traveler's checks, then we would go over and pick it up. Now we start to see the numbers are starting to be the same. They're starting to be consecutive. They're starting to be not quite right. And we followed through and tracked this through until we said, okay, look, this, this is really bad. We went back to the, the people who printed the traveler's checks, said, look, this is really not right. Now we've got consecutive numbers. Now we've got numbers that are duplicated. These are bad bills. These are bad traveler's checks. And they were still saying, no, 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 they're fine. We said, look, we promise you. Our staff have highlighted these. We've gone through all the training. We know all of the security marks that are in there. These are not good. So in the end, we pulled the guy in. We involved the federal agencies. They came in, interviewed the guy. And from someone working on the pointy end of the process, basically cracked a multi-million dollar um, counterfeiting ring that was well right. I think it went to sort of six or seven different countries. Um, it involved a huge amount of money that was being counterfeited and basically broke a ring up that would never, ever have been picked up before if it hadn't been from the alertness, the knowledge that this staff member had and the ability to say, this is not quite right and, and link back to the training that was there. To me, the story illustrates tens of thousands of frontline staff that rely on their training. They're taught an algorithm. Yep. There's decision points in it. They have an escalation plan. They know what right looks like. They have kind of that freedom to deviate into do what they need to assess the situation and to, to give the outcome that you need of... Um, identifying when something's not right and getting that expertise in to, um, uh, to handle it appropriately. And, and, and that's exactly what we're looking at with that transformative cycle of building out a, a, a pathway model that we would, we would use in, in healthcare. And the way that we've, we've, put, these to, we've put this together, it doesn't come from the, the usual sort of hallowed whores of academia. The White Tower. The, yeah, yeah the, this comes from those people that are actually taking care of patients. These are the people that are doing day in, day out, they're identifying problems. And everyone is playing a hugely important role in that team. And it is a team game. And it, it means that everybody's role, no matter how inconsequential they may think it is, they're the hugely important part. They are just as accountable for the measures that are in there as everybody else. And these measures are what people have developed themselves. They're, they're, they're not from the, you know, just from those hallowed halls. It sounds like the keys to true transformation are empower the front line and hold them accountable with reasonable measures. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and this is sort of how we started. Um, this is how we brought together that pathway with chest pain and how we started that off. Yeah, chest pain was, it was individual physicians that when they were taking care of one patient, they would think about that exception to the rule from years ago that they weren't quite sure the right thing happened to them. So they, yeah. were, they weren't thinking about the 99% that they had 
um, handled appropriately so it was almost um, care by exception instead of exceptional care. Yes. So relying upon the transformative methodology, the four-phase approach. Yep. Uh, and those those four phases are um, are integral to, to what's there. You you build a a consensus that's around everything, and being able to structure those as we go through allows you the flexibility to to make differences when necessary. And it, and it all starts with the design phase. The design phase, assembling the coalition of physicians and nurses that actively work in that department or across the departments that take care of that particular um, clinical problem. And they can tell you what we do rather than just what Right. They can also expected. tell you what we should do. Yeah, absolutely. How best and to do it. Um, and then you gather the evidence, they gather, um, they rely upon their experience, combine the local data with the national norms, and come up with that blueprint of care. Um, and again, that's synthetical thinking. Yep. That's putting together the disparate bits of information into one cohesive plan that is agile to um, flow differently as you find out different information at the key decision points. And, and, and then you've, you've got that knowledge, you've got that background, and that will then lead you on to how we put that together. How do we build that information into a structure that everyone can look at it, everyone can understand the process? And, and that's where you start to go to that, to writing that down into that algorithm. Yeah. You, um, you kind of have to make sure that everyone has the same vision and a plan to communicate the vision. Um, but probably, like you said, the most critical part is the written consensus algorithm. And the written consensus algorithm um, has the key decision points for that particular um, clinical problem. And then once you have the algorithm that everybody agrees, hey, this is the best way to take care of patients. And what's important is it's the best way to take care of patients. It's not a business model. It's not a pro forma. It's not, it's not a financial um, model. It's, it's a patient care model of this is the best way to take care of patients. And if you do what's best for patients, it'll end up being best for business. And, and because you're dealing specifically with patients, these are real people. And because of that, you've got to be, you've got to be able to allow that permission to adjust, the ability to, to flex both ways on that pathway for it not to be too rigid. Yeah. And it's important to not just stop then and say, okay, this is the gospel, let's spread it to all the kingdom and implement it. Because that's what a lot of people want to do. But you have to ask that powerful coalition of frontline nurses and physicians, okay, if this is the best way to do it, why don't you do that today? And they will list out several barriers. Yep. And you write down those barriers and then you either you address them. You address the barriers um, either with um, mitigating them or you remove them or you address, hey, this is a really big rock and we have to have big rock movers to help us uh, blow it up. And, and that, that is an important part of it as well because so often you'll try to build a pathway in and like any pathway, if it becomes very difficult for people to use because a tree's fallen across there, you're going to go a different route yep. and we keep going different routes and we find that we don't get that consistency and it's only when 
you've, you've worked hard to breach those barriers and you've found a way through that the benefits really start to come out. Yeah. So some of the key points in the algorithm is the identification. So correctly identifying which patients we're talking about go into this algorithm. Yeah. And along with the identification at the back end is going to be the categorization. Right. Of, so for chest pain, um, the categorization at the end is going to be a DRG or diagnostic related group uh, 311 yes. or angina 313. So that indica- uh, the um, identification and the categorization is kind of the start of that algorithm. And then as you progress a little bit down the algorithm through the decision points, a stratification tool. So the stratification tool helps you identify high, medium, low. Sometimes there's other stratifications of uh, likely, unlikely, or, or different, um, different strata that you stratify them into. Another part of it would be um, an indication or a contraindication. Uh, for example, if there's an imaging test that's in your pathway. Um, you don't do an imaging test on every single patient. For example, uh, one of the advanced chest pain algorithms has a CAT scan of the coronary arteries but we've only found one third of the patients that stratify into that category meet the indications for it, and two thirds of them have contraindications. So they're going to get uh, maybe a, a functional test instead of an anatomic test of their coronary arteries. Right. Um, and then after you've done the appropriate identification, you've done the stratification, you've done the indication, then you have to do the action. And so the action would be do this procedure or place them in this level, the right level of care. Right. And so that is all built into your um, algorithm. And I think once we've got that, that then leads into one of the important parts of, of that pathway. And that's looking at that pilot phase that's there and being able to, to, to try and test what has gone through there. And I know that with, with our pilot, with the chest pain, we, we looked at one of our 300-bed hospitals within the, the corporation. And one of the important things that we wanted to do was not just to, to run a pilot, but to be true to it, to be true to the pathway, to be true to what comes out of it, and to manage by fact. And part of that is to be completely transparent with all the results, yep. with good, bad, or indifferent. And one of the things that we found is we, we go through these various phases, we go through the pathway, but we have to feed that information back. And as design is such the, the heart of all of what happens in here, if you keep feeding that back into that design phase in the pilot, then what you find is it allows that change. It allows you to expand what's there and sometimes quite dramatically, but always for the better. Yeah. Because you're moving forward. So the pilot, I think Cotter calls it short-term win. Yes. And in, in a healthcare, we call it run a pilot, do a prototype, test that, test that prototype and see how it works. So the important thing of a pilot is it is not clinical research. No. You do not have to randomize it. And it's, it's um, so we actually, we submitted it to our IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board. And they have two categories. One is human sub- subject research that there's all kinds of consents for. And then the other is qualitative um, improvement. Yes. And so with the um, 
quality improvement, it is exceeding the standard of care, which is what, what in healthcare, what we call quality. Yeah. And it actually sets the standard of care for your community and kind of, you know, all, all national healthcare is local and it, uh, it quickly becomes the, um, the norm. And, th and that's, that's important in its own right, because you're, what you're doing is, uh, as we said, we've, we've asked the consensus of what do you do? What should you do? How do we integrate all of those together? And why, why are there barriers there? What's stopping you from doing that? And what you're, you're able to do is bring out the very best. And you're able to approach that ideal solution to non-ideal situations as each patient is different. And you can apply those to it. And, and you can go through the roots of giving that, that thought process that's there, which helps that, that protection of, that, uh, of the local standards that you're building in there. Yeah. So during, during the pilot phase, the pilot phase for this particular chest pain was about 400 patients. Yeah. Um, during the two months. And, you know, 80% just follow the algorithm, and there's um, lots of learnings from that. Incredibly more learnings are from the, the 20% that actually um, deviate or slightly uh, go off of the algorithm. But the powerful thing is the physicians told us why. Well, I did it because they had this clinical condition that guides me down a slightly different path. For example, uh, they don't just have chest pain, they have uh, a sensation of an arrhythmia. Um, so there's that, it gives them the, the freedom and the permission to adjust based on individual case. It's not a, it's not a dogmatic, rigid algorithm. And, and of those 20% variations that are in there, you know, 80% or so of those was valid. Yep. It's, it's the reason, yeah, and, and you wouldn't normally see that. You would just know that if you take a purely analytical look at it, it's, uh, it's almost binary. It's go, no go. Why didn't you do it? It's we just did it or we didn't do it. With using these, the important part is the learnings you get from those that don't follow it, that you can now start to bring this back in and create that iterative pathway that we constantly expand on and give the support to the physicians that, you know what, the decisions that you're making with those particular patients are the right ones to make because you've gone through the whole process and this patient is different and you've identified them as being different and you're acting on that difference. So you're giving that personalized medicine to each of those patients. And so then during the pilot, you feed back everybody involved the three key measures. Yes. So one, for patients that you called chest pain, did you use the stratification? Did you use the heart score? the um, history, EKG, age, risk factors, and troponin blood test. So did you use the heart score um, for patients that you called um, chest pain? So that's, that was one key measure that they identified as um, um, a tool doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work, doesn't really help unless you use it. Yeah. Um, and then the second was for patients that transitioned um, from the emergency department to outpatient care, did they get seen? And then the third was, did anyone um, have to come back uh, within the next month for any reason? And I want to know about it. So you feed those three key measures back to them and not drown them in a hundred other statistics that 
um, or on the back of a baseball court card or on a administrator sheet. And the, and the thing is, you you have all of that other data. You have all of the um, the the scorecard of everything else, but it's allowing people to manage themselves and dealing with their their concerns. So as a physician, as a nurse, being able to say okay, I care about the patient. So, yes, I heart-scored this patient. I went through that. Um, the fact that I know that that follow-up was there and did I send them to a cardiologist? Did I send them to a PCP? Did they get that appointment? Sort of what was the outcome on that? You know, did that patient get taken care of? And then if that patient does come back, why did they come back? So we found that short-term success builds credibility. Yes, and I know it seems like we spend a lot of time talking about the design phase, and then we spend a lot of time talking about the pilot phase, where most people want to jump to the implementation and the sustain. They want to they want to talk about the mass production, yeah. where we found it's all about um, prototyping. Yeah, it's all about uh, the design and pilot to make sure you actually have something different that it's not just a a shiny new snazzy car that looks good at a car show. It's actually dramatic change to to what you're what you're trying to. Well, you 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 look as as an example of that. That um, you look at the the way vehicles have progressed. You know, you've got your old gas engines. I nearly said petrol, but gas engines that are out there, and how now we're going more towards those electric driven vehicles. Now, if you'd have come out with um, basically a hairdryer on four wheels, then it wouldn't have taken off. But there's been a lot of care and consideration that have gone through this of getting the battery technology right and designing that, designing the weight of the vehicle, designing how the, the vehicle will function with the individual people that will be driving it and take the care and the intention early on in getting that design of, of running the various wind tests to make it more economical to, to run the batteries, extend the battery life that's on there, prototype the life out of it so that you can get the very, very best product so that when it comes to market, you actually have something that people want, not just something that you've conceived in your head and said, ah, that'll yeah. do. Yeah, I think that if Elon Musk had taken his very first prototype and tried to mass produce it, I think he wouldn't have had the success that he has. No. But with um, making sure that the prototype um, has all the improvements and is something that he piloted, then he's able to have the S model, have the X model, have the Model 3, and shift into the production phase, which for us, the production component is the implementation. Yes. So we found during the implementation phase, it quickly spreads on its own, and sometimes it's a little out of control if it's successful because everybody wants it, and many think, oh, we know how to do that. You just heart score the patient and do the electronic um, medical record button um, that um, will connect them to outpatient care. And I think what we found that was crucial to the, uh, the spread of the implementation was the education. And I think you put a lot of effort into the education. And that is something, again, is different. Normally, we, we look at education as being, we'll send out an email, we'll send out a booklet, um, we'll, we'll put it out on um, a webcast of some sort. And they're all great. They're all various mediums that you can use. But we've got to remember what we're dealing with and what we're trying to do. We're dealing with people for people. 
and we have to work on a one-to-one because everyone is different. And because of that, putting the level of, of effort into the education enables the latter stages of the pathway to, to come into effect and to assist in the progress. Because it's important not just to give people the baseline information about this is what the expectations are, these are where the, the barriers may come up and these are how to get over it, but about people being ingrained into it, having the pathway um, as part of their culture that they feel that as part of my culture, if it needs changing, I can change it. I'm an active living part of that, that pathway. And it, it gives them the flexibility to, to have the strength to come out and say, look, this particular part's not working. This is how it needs to change. And then allowing us to be able to bring together the, the extra data, the extra information, which will help build around that to evidence that, to make the changes which are sustainable and acceptable to everyone. So during the implementation phase, it just wasn't practical for you to have a personal conversation with 3,000 doctors no. and at a 3,000-bed hospital. But what was scalable is one emergency medicine group that covered all 10 of the emergency departments. So they have a clinical leadership meeting that we make sure that the clinical standards and, they, and, and all the leadership is on board with, this is how we want to take care of patients. And then each of the 10 campuses would have their own core uh, group of physicians and nurses and that meets once a month. So meeting with the core group and then they also hear that it's not just something that administration came up with, but their clinical leadership who they trust and respect and work for is also empowering them to, hey, this is, this is something we own. This is something that is, that is our pathway. Um, and then with cardiologists, with 100 cardiologists, there's usually about 220 opinions. Yes. <laughs> and so for the 100 cardiologists, speaking to the, um, their departmental meeting, and their departmental meeting, not saying, we know better than you, but saying, um, here's your leaders that have been actively involved, and having those cardiology leaders saying, oh, yes, this was my idea eight years ago, and finally <laughs> the hospital's gotten around to removing the barriers, um, it's just more powerful than than kind of anything that that um, you know you can read in a book from another another healthcare organization. And it, and it helps reinforce if you look as you said in Cotter's early stages, it's about that quick win. Yep. And that that comes out of. And that. how do I get in on that quick win? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's it. And and it's it's. It's almost a socialist approach. It's everybody's pathway. Everybody's involved in it, and everybody takes the glory that comes out of it. And that's the important part that people feel listened to, that their clinical decision-making skills, that, I mean, one of the things that we, we always heard is my patients are different. And being able to link the data that comes out of the patients that are seen with what they do and what everybody else does is interesting that, yes, your patients are different, but they actually end up with the same type of process that goes on, the same type of treatment regimes. You just tweak them individually. So they are different, but they're also the same. And it's being able to get that that contrast between there that everybody feels listened to. Everybody is able to respond and be able to, to put their input in and know that something's going to be done about it. That even if you come back and say, you know what, we've identified a barrier at this stage, we, we can't breach it. We've tried. There are certain elements in there that we can't move. But what we're going to do is we're going to keep working on it. 
and being able to give them that support that it's not administration turning up and saying, no, that's it, get on with it. It's someone that's prepared to work with it, a team prepared to work and to help nurture it, to get the very, very best for, for the patient and make it easy for everyone. And the easier we make it, the, the better the response that come out. Yeah, you alluded to one of the steps of um, physician change. So I think of Orlikoff, who's a healthcare yep. futurist. He has four steps um, in physician change. Number one is, I don't believe your data, or I don't believe the data. Number two is, okay, I believe your data. This is how my patients are different. Yep. And then step three is, okay, I will change when X changes. I'll change when my colleagues change, or I'll change when the hospital changes, or I'll change when the government changes. And then step four of that, of the, of the steps of physician change is, okay, let's just do it. So this methodology actually addresses uh, the believable data. Yep. So after you have believable data, um, it addresses how your patients are different, and then also how they're very similar and exactly the same in, in different stratification categories. Um, and then it also addresses step three of changing when X changes. Well, here's the barriers you identified, told us this needs to change, and we've done our best to address those. And then it jumps to, okay, let's just do it, which goes back to the implementation phase. The education, you also can't you can't individually spend unlimited time with all hundred of the cardiologists or the primary care physicians, which is um, ten times that. Yeah. But you can talk to their their whispers, the doctor whispers, yeah. and so it's the practice managers. So maybe it gets narrowed down to ten practices, and you talk to the um, the practice managers and explain what the algorithm is and that it's fair for everybody. And bottom line, what do I have to do? Well, if you're on call for this hospital campus, a patient gets seen with, um, with chest pain. If you've agreed that you trust the emergency medicine physician who's followed the algorithm and they are safe for transition to outpatient care, you will provide um, a slot for them to be seen within 72 hours. And re regardless of their payer status, you will take care of them and... Um, and get them the, the next step in the evaluation. And, and, and that then, with, with their acceptance, you start to get the, the, the change in-house as well. You, you start to get people now accepting it. I'm now seeing that my patients are being cared for outside, um, that the patients are not necessarily coming back with, in this case, with a chest pain issue. It's because they fell off their bike or something like that. And so you, you start to build the confidence in there and, and we start to get that that consistent change within the the system as a whole, within the, the emergency department, within cardiology, within the PCPs themselves, who who are now part of this and they start to transition from one to the other. That now this this is part of my culture, this is part of where I go. So after the implementation phase, there's not there's not really a dramatic, clear, okay, now we've moved into the sustain phase, no. but you have to have the essential elements of the sustain phase, which is those two or three key performance measures that you continue to monitor and provide back to the teams of physicians that are taking care of the patients. Yeah. And what you'll find is, you know, every year, 
there's one in five nurses that turn over. Yeah. You know, every July, there's a new set of um, attendings that c come in that may have trained somewhere else in a different system. Um, and there's just, there's constant change in personnel, but what is steady is, well, this is the way we've always done it here. Yeah. And so this is, this is just the way we take care of patients. Um, so you have to provide those key measures to the physicians, to the teams, and sometimes they'll they'll say, where did this come from? And then that gives you the opportunity to explain what they had come up with in the past, that they were involved in the design, the pilot, the implementation. And so it gives you that springboard to um, to launch into um, the yeah, cycle. Yeah, and, and that as, as they transform, as they transition into those elements, it, it's important that constant feedback of the information. It, it helps them expand what's there. Um, when you have these, the new nursing staff, the new doctors that come through, being able to help and support and get that involuntary, it's been here for hundreds of years. Yeah, it sounds like muscle memory. Yeah, uh, exactly. It, it It's part of that reaction of where we're going. And and also being able to highlight that, you know what, this, we're not married to this process, to this system, to this pathway, that it can be changed at any time with validity with new things that come up. So looking at things like the new troponin, the generation five troponin that comes in. So that'll add a tweak to the pathway that's there, but having the flexibility to add these in and for them knowing that it can be reactive, it's not something that was founded in the 1700s and it's still going on there and we don't know how to change it. So I knew the transformation was complete when we got a phone call from another hospital, the other side of the state and it was um, one of the new attendings that had called back and said, can you believe at our emergency department, they don't use the heart score, they don't use the algorithm, and they were appalled that they weren't following the standard of care, and can you, uh, can you send that, can you help? Yeah. And so that's when I knew that um, the, uh, the change was permanent and they had been indoctrinated and culturated <laughs> into the, uh, into the, the best way to take care of patients that, that they had come up with. Yeah, uh, and as you say, it, it becomes that muscle memory to everyone that's there. And it, it becomes familiar to them. Yeah. And I think if, if you look at today, we've got something like, what, 20 different pathways that, that we're involved in that we're expanding out on. And, and with that information, you generate these dozen or so different pathways that, that lock it in. Yeah, I think the learning to me was... We looked at 20 different pathways projects and we're active with 12 and it's just as important the eight that fell by the wayside. Yeah. You have to learn from what might be perceived as a failure, um, but the reason that you have to also know what to let go of. Maybe it's not, it's not a big enough of a win to expend the energy or there may be permanent barriers in place that it's just not the right the right time, or you don't have physician champion that will help with um, with with the vision. But I think it's important as well. These these are almost like the um, when you put together some of the Swedish furniture, you get the extra screws and nuts and bolts left over. And I think it's important sometimes to to have a little box that you keep those in oh, because yeah. you never quite yeah. know when you're going to need those. And and often we've we've built other pathways and well, we've been involved in those, and we've been able to draw on those ones that we'd set aside for a while. And that helps to link together and, and helps in some respects to, to assist in those changes that, you know what, 
we didn't forget about that one. It's still there, and now it's part of a different pathway. But it actually solves that issue that you'd identified earlier, and we just didn't have the means, or we had the barriers were too big to, to overcome them. And we've been able to find a different way around there. So having that extra little box of of the random screws can can often really help out when when you need to. Yep. So I think why it works, I think why it works for prototyping production performance is just the simple act of gathering physicians together to participate. It builds energy around a shared sense of purpose. And when you have the algorithms in writing, it allows every physician to have that common familiar guideline that they've actually developed. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a textbook medicine type right. approach. This this is you we're, we're not we're not going down that chef's path of a cookbook. It, it's living, changing. Absolutely. And then listing the barriers ahead of time actually is much easier than trying to mitigate them in real time. And there's something about human psychology that once you have permission to deviate, then it it actually guides you back to the um, fall back to to your original training, and it makes it better for the individual care. It, it's interesting because it, it even goes outside of the the clinical aspects that are there. So there, it, it actually brings to mind the the park that I worked at before. Um, one of the members of staff within the team. Um, works there part-time. The transformation team. Uh, the transformation yeah. team. They work there part-time. And they were involved in several of the pathways. And it was really interesting. They were, they were out one day and they were working and um, in the area. Remember, we're in Florida. It's hot and people are enjoying themselves and they forget to drink and eat because they're just completely drawn into the, the particular theme parks that are in the area. And he was there one day standing out in the hot, blazing sun. And whilst he was standing there, a, a guest just collapsed. Now, the normal response is jump on the radio, get the paramedics out to take care of the patient and, and just keep the crowds back. He'd been involved in a pathway, one of our pathways for syncope, which helped identify those patients that do you have a major problem or not as major a problem? And is it safe to you know, take a different course of action? And associated with that is a scoring system similar to the heart score called the head score, which brings together three different scoring systems um, and um, joins those together to, to give you a, almost a dynamic solution to what's going on. He immediately ran to take care of the guest and it was funny because he said you know what i just snapped straight over in my head i started doing the head score for this patient i ran through it are they this are they that do they have that he said and immediately i went no this patient's going to be all this this guest is going to be okay um we'll still get the paramedics out there to make sure they care but don't worry folks don't worry the rest of the family we've got it covered this is an example of someone outside of the clinical side of things, that they deal with the administrative side of things, but they immediately snapped towards this process, a process that enabled them to, to eye out the situation, to go through a structured approach that's there, to have the flexibility that's necessary for the environment, and to come out and more importantly, take care of a patient. So I think it's the empowering the front line and then you'll find that once they're empowered, 
they'll not only use that empowerment for that specific issue, but they'll start using it for different clinical problems that they have. And it will become doing is believing. It's time to wrap up this episode of Transformative Healthcare, a limited edition 14-part podcast series. I've been your host, Todd Chobatar. To discover other great resources to help you feel whole in mind, body, and spirit, please visit us at adventhealthpress.com. While you're there, please sign up for our newsletter. It's free and it includes healthy living tips, leadership wisdom, along with regular giveaways. Tune in for our next episode where Jeffrey Kuhlman and Daniel Peach will be discussing head scores, sepsis, and the life cycle of a butterfly. Thanks for joining us.